never know what to say. Do I say good morning or good afternoon? So good day, everyone. Good to see everyone. Um, I think we smell spring, don't we? Okay, and that also reminds me of Lent. Anybody know what Lent means? <laughs> means spring. And um, it's, it's been part of the Christian calendar to have this 40-day countdown to Easter, create the sense of anticipation, um, Easter being in spring, thus the name Lent. And um, it's, it's been a time where Christians just really take very seriously preparing their hearts to digest and to take in God. And the way that they do that is um, historically is they've said no to things, things that can become distractions, things that can pull us away from God. Um, and so they declare some big no's in their life. No, I'm not going to do this. Uh, no, I'm not going to eat this. Um, so that they can say a bigger yes to God. And um, so we're, we're, I'd, I'd challenge all of us. My heart needs this. Um, and we, you know, have these Torah portions that we have called our church to, to, to read God's word. And now we've also added a, a Lent reading as well. Um, again, saying no so we can say yes, yes to uh, taking in God. So I uh, just want to make those aware you can get these at the information table. Also, I might as well just tell you right now, um, these things have been gobbled up this morning. I'm going to make mention of this in the gathering. I know that there aren't enough for those of you who want it. If you take it, I want you to digest it. It'll make more sense later. Um, and I will get, we will have these at the Connections, tape, connections Center uh, from here on out for anyone who wants them. But we're going to run out of them this morning. I know this church too well. Okay. We are in the life of Paul because we believe that not only do Paul's writings, because he wrote so much for our New Testament, matter, but also that his life matters. And uh, we see that in the New Testament. Um, it gives, you know, a lot of, it shines a spotlight on Paul's life. Um, so I'm not going to review it all, but right now we are in, when Paul sets out on his second missionary journey, um, the first thing that he does, and I think I have a PowerPoint that lays this thing out, uh, he goes to a place called Lystra, uh, because in his mind he knows that there's a disciple there. And he's on this journey already with Luke and with Silas, and he wants to add a fourth person, shows up at Lystra and says, Timothy, would you be my, my disciple? Come follow me. Uh, then he wants to get into the province of Asia, uh, that's that Roman province, not Asia as we know it today. It's the, the, red, um, the red on the, on the map. Uh, and the reason why Paul wants to get there, well, Asia means east, and this is where the eastern world and the western world meet. Um, and it's much like our east coast today. It's, it's a very prestigious, prominent part of the Roman Empire uh, with, with great cities, uh, cities like Philadelphia, um, Laodicea, Pergamum, uh, much like our East Coast today. Paul wants to bring the gospel there. 
God just keeps closing the door. And then one night, uh, Paul has a dream, and in his dream, there's this man from Macedonia who's just begging him, Paul, please, please help us. Paul takes that as, as, as a word from the Lord, and the next day, they set out for the province of Macedonia, which you can see on, on the map. Um, this is Paul now bringing the gospel for the first time to Europe. And he is stepping foot on Europe, but Macedonia is also known to be the home place of Alexander the Great. And it's also the, the epicenter of Hellenism. And we've talked about Hellenism, but Hel- Hellenism is the worldview of the Greeks that they infused in their empire. It's a very seductive uh, worldview because it's a worldview that's, at the end of the day, all about me and my pleasure and my prosperity and my comfort and my celebrity. Um, it, it's a worldview that caters to the individual. And I don't have to explain it anymore because that's our world. We know Hellenism all too well. And here's what I want us to see. That as Alexander came from the west to the east with the gospel of Hellenism, and as he's conquering and conquering, he's planting these cities to preach the gospel of Hellenism. Just a few centuries later now, you have Paul and these apostles going from east to west with the gospel of Jesus Christ planting churches. And, and this is not a coincidence. This is how God is going to undo the kingdoms of this world and replace it with the kingdom of Christ. And I just think it's, it's so cool to, to be able to see this. Now, uh, when Paul gets to Macedonia, as we saw uh, the last couple of weeks, he goes right to one of its most important cities, Philippi. Philippi is incredibly important to this province because uh, it is a colony of Rome. Rome turns Philippi into a mini-Rome. Why do they do that? So it can preach the gospel of Rome to the world. And I love it now uh, because we see how those conversions, the power of the gospel to convert a life, just like we saw this morning. The gospel is so powerful. To transform a life. But here's the deal. If we think God's ultimate goal is conversion, we're missing it. In fact, it's Hellenistic to just think this whole thing is about God and me, me and God. God's ultimate goal and strategy is for a we. For a church. And I I hear people someday, sometimes say to me like, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm into Jesus, but I've given up on the church. And I'll just say to them, you don't have a right to do that. Unless in giving up the church, you know you're giving up on Christ. Because Christ loves the church. Christ died for the church. Christ is all about building the church. I mean, there's a guy in town who calls me a heretic. I'm resisting saying his name right now. Um, but he, he has this whole cadre of, of, of rich businessmen around him um, 
who he's pouring Christ into, but at the same time telling them not to go to church, not to be elders, and all of this. It's sad. Um, and, and I don't know why these guys, because these are guys that our church needs. These are guys that, could, that ought to be elders. And yet they're just... I'll stop there. Let's go to Acts 17. And we're going to see here how, how God is continuing to build his church. The church that he loves, the church that he died for. Acts 17, if you have a Bible like mine, 899. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia and came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue, As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and for three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah, the Christ, had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. And some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. And other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters. (laughs) It's kind of an interesting term, some bad characters. Rounded them up from the marketplace. They formed a mob. They started a riot in the the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. Obviously, Jason is someone where the house church is, is gathered, and he's become a believer. But when they did not find him, they, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world. And that literally reads, these men who have turned the world upside down. Love it. They are defying Caesar's decrees. They are saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into uproar. And then they made Jason and the others post bond and they let them go. I want you to feel the collision that's going on right now. And as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. This is God's word. You guys can be seated. So now Paul uh, sets his sights on probably the most important city in the province of Macedonia, uh, Thessalonica. Uh, Thessalonica is the capital city of Macedonia. Um, It's named to honor Alexander the Great's sister. That's her name, Thessalonica. Um, And it's this huge, it's probably the seventh largest city in the Roman Empire. Um, It's an international city. Uh, The the land routes, the the sea routes, uh, all go through Thessalonica. Um, It's it's a very important city. That's what Paul does. It's all part of his strategy. But I also want to not just look at this through Paul, but I want to look at this through God. Because God is the one who's behind all of this. And I don't want us to miss God's providence. Now, I don't know if we think about this, but Paul is walking the gospel. He's not 
getting uh, on a plane. He's not getting in a car. He's not getting on a bus. Uh, he is, for the most part, other than a few times when he take, uses a uh, boat, he, he's walking. Travelers in that day traveled 30 miles a day. Think about that. They walked more than a marathon. And, uh, in fact, scholars calculate that, that through all Paul's travels, taking the gospel to the, to the nations, he walked 10,000 miles. What are you willing to walk 10,000 miles for? Because that's Paul. Um, now, the, these cities in verse 1, the, these are coastal cities. So you need to start thinking California. You need to think Santa Barbara, Monterey, with, with uh, Thessalonica being L.A. And, and you need to, if you know anything about California, Paul is on Highway 1. Um, and, and it's literally called the Via Ignatia. Um, but here's what I want us to know, that without that Roman road, what would normally take months and maybe even years is now taking Paul days and weeks to travel. And I love this because here is Rome building these state-of-the-art roads um, for its own purposes, namely for its armies, and God is using Rome the hubris of Rome, for the sake of the gospel. God's preparing the way. And, and, and not only is, is God preparing uh, the way for the, the gospel to go forth, but he's also preparing the place. Because in all of these cities, as we saw today in, in, in verse 2, there's synagogues. Synagogues are just these little pockets of, of God's people. They worship God. They, they digest God's word. They're eagerly awaiting the Messiah in the Messianic kingdom. And, and they're just ripe for, for Paul to just come and, and say, Messiah has come. He's here. And the kingdom of God is being unleashed. And how did this all take, a play, take place? It's because 500 years before this, God in his providence um, used the Babylonians to exile his people. Um, and, and they took the, them to, to Babylon at first, but eventually uh, they were scattered all over the world. And I like when you read the, that part of the story, um, they're in mourning. Read Psalm 137. They, they give expression to this morning. By the, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat, we wept, and we hung our instruments on the trees. And our captors said, would you, would you sing us your songs of joy, songs of your land? And they just looked at him and said, how can we sing? But God also said to them, he said, I can't just have you waste your life mourning for what you don't have. And then uh, through the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 29, God says, there's a reason for this exile. This is all part of my purpose. And while you're in Babylon, I want you to move right into the heart of Babylon. And I want you to pray for the, the peace of Babylon, for the prosperity of Babylon. I want you to be my peace, live out my peace, bringing my shalom to the chaos of Babylon. So now by the time of Paul, God through his 
Providence has these little pockets of his people, these, these little mini colonies that are so ripe for the gospel. And this is why Paul's strategy is to go to the synagogue. And, and um, another thing that I, I, I think that we fail to understand is that these synagogues are not just comprised of Jews. There are so many Gentiles that are in these synagogues, um, in large part due to the fact that Hellenism is bankrupt. Rome and its way of life is bankrupt. And when these Gentiles start to um, get wind um, and, 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 and see what, what, what the God Yahweh, the God of the Bible is all about, they are hugely attracted. For instance... Um, there's a plaque that's recently been discovered in this city called Aphrodisius. Aphrodisius is in that province of Asia. It's one of these important cities. Um, on this plaque are, are all the members of the synagogue in that city. And here's a, a, a PowerPoint of this that they found. Um, the first 45 names on this plaque are, are, are Jewish. It's what you would expect. But then there's a break, and... and, and, and um, with this title, Theo Sebius. Theo means God, Sebius means worshiper or fear. So you have this title, God fear or God worshiper, and then underneath that, you have all these Latin and Greek names. 45 Latin and Greek names. 45 Gentiles belong to this. This one synagogue, 45, that's 45%. And so God has prepared this place, this ripe place, where, where a guy like Paul, who in that world of synagogue, when he shows up being trained by Gamaliel, it's like someone being trained by Billy Graham, stepping into that thing and telling them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, why did I take all this time to explain this? Because I want to go back to that man from Macedonia. Because that man from Macedonia represents the call of God in Paul's life at that time. And what I want us to see, because here's the deal, God doesn't save us without also calling us. If you belong to God, if you, if you would say yes, I, I, I could tell a similar story of how God has rescued me today and, and, and brought me into his kingdom, then along with that, you, you also hopefully can speak to the call of God in your life. What is your man from Macedonia? Because for those of us in this room that, that know the call of God, What's so encouraging about this is that God has already prepared the way. He has prepared the roads. And not only has he gone before us and prepared that, but he's prepared the place as well. He's in it with us. His providence is, is, is why it happens. It's not because we're so good. It's because he's so good. He's the one who's building his church. Now here's the deal. Even though God provides the way, 
provides the place. It's going to cost us. It's costly. I mean, you just think about the whole message. And inherent in the message that we proclaim, there's such cost. I mean, we see that right in our text. Look at verses 2 and 3. As was his strategy, Paul went into the synagogue for three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. It cost God. By the way, could you do what Paul just did? Could you explain Christ? The story of God? And why God, through Christ, had to suffer? And what that suffering entails for you, for me, for the whole world? And could you do that from the scriptures? I love what we got today. And, and trust me, Crossroads isn't creative enough to actually structure or plan. This just happened to be coincidence that uh, Lisa shared her testimony. And I'm sitting there that la- last night. And, and, and she's giving us her whole testimony through scripture. Scripture. Do you know the scriptures? This is what Jesus is doing on the road to Emmaus with with those two disciples. He's explaining why the Christ had to suffer, and he's doing it from Scripture. And again, remember, Scripture, they don't have a New Testament, so it just refers to the Old Testament. That's what Paul is doing every time he shows up in a synagogue, is he's, he's proclaiming Christ, he's teaching Christ, and he's explaining why Christ had to suffer. Could you do that? Do you know the story? Do you, do, do, do you know the story well enough to know that the story is, is, is what Paul calls gospel? And, and, and the gospel is, is the good news of God's reign. God's reign that, that breaks into chaos and brings about shalom. Um, it's, it's personal, like we heard this morning through a testimony, how, how God's reign breaks into a person's life, into their chaos, and brings about shalom. Uh, but it's more than personal. It's cosmic. Uh, the first thing in, in creation, in Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis wants us to know right at the outset that two realities exist. There's God, but there's also the tohu bohu, the chaos. And God's first act of creation is to move into the chaos and bring about order and harmony and shalom. It's the gospel. And the vehicle of the gospel is Christ. Christ is the one who, who brings God's reign, who brings God's rule, who unleashes it upon uh, the chaos of our world and brings shalom. And then when you stop and consider how God in Christ does this, it's costly. Because like the prophet said, Christ Uh, didn't come to the world like a lion to devour evil. Christ came to the world as a lamb, as a lamb led to the slaughter to absorb evil into himself. And when he ascended to heaven, 
He put the baton in our hands in the church. And he said, you now, church, are the vehicle by which my reign and my rule are going to be unleashed into the chaos of the world to bring about shalom. That's why we're called the body of Christ. We're literally his body. Why we're called the temple because we are the real presence of God in the world to bring his reign and rule. And we do that through a spoken message. But we are also to become the message. And I'm preaching this to myself more than anyone in the room right now. Living at a time in which we live where everything in us wants to be lion-like, if we are the message, what the world ought to see in us is something that resembles a lamb, a lamb slain. And we see it in our text. I mean, look at verses 5 and 6. A church is birthed. But the Jews were jealous, not all of them, just some of them. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house. Now think about this. Anytime Acts actually names someone, that tells us that person's a pretty important, prominent person of this city. And this is someone now who has come to Christ. And and look at what happened so quickly in his life. They rushed to his house. They drag him out. And they lead him as a lamb (laughs) before the officials. It's costly. Paul and Silas, once again, need to do this night escape to a different town. You think Paul gets to that place like, phew, we dodged a bullet there? Are you kidding He is just feeling the agony of having to leave and wondering what's going on with with, with his fellow brothers and sisters who have just committed his life to Christ. And if you think I'm just presuming this, it's, it's in the letter that he writes him in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 17. He speaks to this just agony. In fact, later, the same thing is going to happen when, when he has to leave Ephesus, where he, again, is going to have to leave behind uh, his, his brothers and sisters who are to suffer. In fact, he, he, he describes uh, how this made him feel in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 2, verse 8, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles that we experience in the province of Asia. That's where Ephesus is. It's the capital of Asia. It says, we are under great pressure, far beyond our ability to to endure, so that we even despaired of life itself. And see, that's the cost, the the, the cost of, of the gospel. Paul is... Literally now despairing of, of life. He, he, he's devastated. He feels this deep burden for his brothers and sisters in Ephesus that he had to leave behind. But here's what we need to know. That it's in the cost. It's in the sacrifice. It's in the weakness. It's in the suffering. That the power of the gospel is actually unleashed. Unleashed. 
In fact, we even see this in the first verses. I mean, Paul starts this whole letter off in 2 Corinthians. He says in verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts all of us in our troubles, so we can comfort those um, in their troubles with the comfort that we ourselves receive from God. Do you hear what Paul's saying here? Paul essentially is saying, praise be to God that we despaired of life and were in that place of suffering because it was in that place of suffering that we actually experienced the comfort of God, which is now the very comfort that we give to others when they are in their place of despair and suffering. And that's the power of the gospel. And I got to experience it this week. I had a front row seat to it. Because Tim, the the guy that shared his life story last week, found out soon thereafter that his dad, dad has stage three cancer. And so his dad and Tim came to our elders Wednesday for prayer. I'm a dad. I'm a son. And to see a father and a son have to go through what they're going through with stage three cancer, knowing that Tim even lost his, his mom, dad lost his wife three years ago to cancer. And the most powerful moment that night was Ed Kingma comforting them, exhorting them, and why did his words have such, such power and authority? Is because Ed just had cancer. And his wife just had cancer. And he has experienced the comfort of God in his cancer that he can now share with someone else and comfort them. This is how we are the message. And, and, and this, this message is powerful, and, and the power is, is subversive. It's a subversive power. You know what subversive means? You know what to subvert means? I knew you didn't. That's why I have a... a, a <laughs> subvert. Subvert is to undermine the power and authority of an established system or institution. Look at the synonyms. Destabilize, unsettle, overthrow, overturn, bring down, topple, dispose, oust, disrupt, wreak havoc on, sabotage, ruin, undermine, weaken, damage. And I think that is what Paul is getting at. In another place in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, when he talks about the power of the gospel, which he says is Christ crucified, and then he says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and shame there could be subvert. God chose the foolish things of the world to subvert the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to subvert the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the, the things that are not to subvert the things that are, so that no one may boast but in God. 
And it's in our, it's in our text today in verse 6. When they say about this movement, they're, they're turning the world upside down. Like the previous chapter with the great earthquake, the whole world is quaking because of the subversive power of the gospel. And again, this power is not the power of the lion. It's the power of the lamb, of a, of a slain lamb that is undermining all the power structures of its day that's toppling empires itself it is in fact i think the two major power structures the gospel is up against at this point in the story are actually in our text judaism and rome judaism is a religious power rome is a worldly power and, and on both of these fronts, it's lion versus the lamb. And I'll start with Rome. And because Rome is, is such a huge backdrop to the, to the New Testament that we hardly ever consider. Now, what's Rome? Well, well, the closest equivalent to Rome in our world, I think, is Nazi Germany. Now, when we look back on Nazi Germany today, uh, we see the destructive force of evil that it was. But what you need to know is that at that time, uh, most people actually praised Nazi Germany. I mean, politicians from all over the world, minus Winston Churchill, saw Hitler as a great statesman who was bringing Germany back to life. And especially to the Germans themselves, I mean, uh, he was seen as the great savior. Because on, on the surface, Nazism was, was a beautiful thing to behold. I mean, with all its pageantry and prosperity and its propaganda, I mean, it was believed by many to be the hope for the world at that time. And see, this is how empires like Nazi Germany and, and, and Rome come about. We want to say... Um, it's all about the megalomaniac and the people are the victim. Actually, the people are the perpetrators. Because people want hope. And so they put power in the hands of the few. And, 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 and with empire, they'll put power in the hands of the one. And they'll say, be our king, be our Fuhrer, be our Caesar. And make everything right. I mean, on a much smaller scale, this can happen anywhere. It can happen in churches, for crying out loud. And see, then that power, then, is, is grabbed up by a megalomaniac. And, and the, the power of empire is, is fourfold. I mean, it's military power. It's political power. It's, it's economic power. But see, the thing that really makes empire empire more than anything else it has to become an ideological power. It has to possess a theology. And see, Rome knew this better than anyone else. It, it, it knew that uh, it needed to inspire people. And, and, and the way that it would get the masses to believe that it was more than just a superpower, um, but that it was literally the hope for the world and, and, and the world's savior. Centered on its Caesar, who is declared not to just be a ruler, but to 
declared as, as Lord, as, as God. And the poets and the philosophers bought into this and, and propagated it and talked about the manifest destiny of Rome and its, and its emperor, its Caesar. And, and, and Rome developed around this just this um, massive propaganda machine. Propaganda was, they probably did propaganda better than anyone. Building temples in every city. Temples to worship Rome. Temples to worship Caesar as Lord and God. Um, every mile marker as you're traveling uh, Rome's roads, which was every eight miles, had something that declared Caesar to be Lord and God. Uh, every city gate, when you entered a city, had etched in the gate, uh, Caesar, Lord, God, divine. It's plastered on their coins. I mean, they made even uh, Nazi Germany. I mean, think about that. I mean, everywhere in Germany where you went, it was Heil Hitler, Heil Hitler, Heil Hitler. It's almost like you had to do that in order to participate in all aspects of German life. But even more so in Rome, it was you had to declare in the marketplace if you're going to buy or sell that, Jew, that, that Caesar is Lord. Um, if you're going to participate in politics, if you're going to participate in, in any form of social life, if you are going to go to the arena or to the spectacles or watch the gladiator show, you had to declare Caesar's Lord. And now added to this... Because this sweeps to a city like Thessalonica even a generation before Paul. And Rome gave Thessalonica special status because Rome was enamored with the Greeks and especially Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was their model. And because this was the prominent city in Macedonia, it was declared by Rome to be a free city, which meant no police state there, no Roman centurions um, or, or legions, uh, no Roman tax, and they were free to govern themselves. So these city officials are desperate to preserve this status. And now think about it, the, these Christians are brought before the, the officials, they're, they're singled out, they're, they're dragged out of their homes, they're brought out in public, and the charges against them to the officials, they defy Caesar and proclaim another king. Well, Rome crucifies people for a lot less than this. Well, here's a question I want us to ask. How did they defy Caesar? Was it as a lion? Did they take up their swords? I don't think so. In fact, I know so. Read Romans 13. I dare you this week to read Romans 13, and I dare you to apply it to your life. Because Paul says, and this is at a time when Nero is the emperor, church, I want you to submit to all governing authorities. And Timothy takes it even further. He says, I want you to pray for him. 
I'll tell you how they defied Caesar. It was through their total allegiance to another king. Total allegiance. They did not say, Caesar is Lord. They said, Jesus Christ is Lord. And they proclaimed him. They imitated him. And that's how they defied Caesar. In fact, the, 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 the proof of what I'm saying right now is in the letter that Paul will write to this church in, in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians, um, in chapter 1, verse 6. Uh, Paul talks, he praises them. You guys were imitators of us as we have imitated Christ. And then he starts talking about suffering. And then in chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, he says, you know, you are imitators like your brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem who too were persecuted by the Jews who also uh, persecuted Christ and the prophets before them. In other words, what Paul is saying is, is you guys are imitating Jesus who suffered, who we are all imitating. Or a word that Paul uses all the time. He uses it all the time when he writes to, Thessalonian, to the Thessalonians, um, the word gospel. Uh, gospel, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around this, but gospel is a word that the Romans are the ones that developed and popularized. I mean, the gospel of Rome, the good news of Caesar and the peace that he brings to the world uh, but Paul does a little twist on this word gospel. Uh, the Ro- Romans used the word euangelia, which means gospel. Paul uses the word euangelion, which means the gospel. We preach to you the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or even in, in, in all of Paul's letters, or in, in, in many of them, he, he usually starts off with his greeting, grace and peace. And even peace is, is a word that was, that, that the, was attached to Rome and, and, and to their gospel because it was that Roman pox, uh, the, that's the Latin word for peace, that they, that they promised the world uh, through, their, through their Caesars, but it was a peace that came through war and global domination. And Paul says, grace and peace, grace and peace, the peace of Jesus Christ is through grace. Because we don't overcome Caesar with another form of Caesar, we overcome Caesar with Christ and his grace. What does that look like? And I thought about, like, how, how, do, how do we, like, apply this? And then I remembered this thing that I read in my church history book. And it just, it, it so got traction in my heart. It's a letter written by a city official to, the Rome, to a Roman senator describing Christians and what they were like in the first century. <laughs> I can't even believe it. I gave my copy away. But here we go. (laughs) Those Christians. Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. 
They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it is Greek or foreign. And yet there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Just think about that. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they may marry and have children, but they do not expose them. Infant exposure was prevalent. They share their meals, but not their wives. They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Obedient to the laws, they yet live on a different level that transcends the law. Because Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. Condemned because they are not understood. They are put to death, but raised to life. And again, they live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is to their glory. They are defamed, but vindicated. A blessing is their answer to abuse, deference, their response to insult. For the good that they do, they receive the punishment of criminals, but even then they rejoice as though receiving the gift of life. They are attacked by the Jews as aliens. They are persecuted by the Greeks, yet no one can explain the reason for this hatred. And we may say that the Christian is to the world what the soul is to the body, as the soul is present in every part of the body while remaining distinct from it. So Christians are found in all the cities of the world but cannot be identified with the world. What would, what would our mayor write to Washington, D.C. about Christians today? Now, the second front that Christianity is up against is, is Judaism. And this is where I want to just really, please listen to me. What do I mean by Judaism? I'm, I'm emphasizing the ism. It's not the Jew per se, because many Jews are, 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 are giving their lives to Christ. Um, what I mean by Judaism is the system, and it's those in charge of the system, and those who get power through the system. For instance, when John's gospel says that the Jews sought to kill Jesus, this isn't all the Jews. It's the Jews who are in power. It's the ones who have institutionalized and systematized the thing that God is doing through the Jews for their own personal gain. What I'm talking about here is religion. Because religion is whenever we use God or when we manipulate God or when we systematize or institutionalize God in a way that it serves us. In fact, when I'm talking Judaism here, I could also include Catholicism, Calvinism, Evangelicalism. It's when we make it all about the forms and the rituals and the traditions, about being kosher, about dressing the part, looking the part, going through the motions, and suddenly you wake up and realize that God isn't present anymore, but no one really seems to care because we're so advantaged through this system that we've created. 
And at the end of the day, religion is really no different than Rome because it's still all about power. And, and you need to understand that religion has nothing but hatred for Christ. It's in our text. It's in the Gospels. Jesus in the Gospels is colliding with religion. It's religion and religious people who put him to death. It's religion and religious people who are now hunting Paul down everywhere he goes. That's why when we talk about the gospel at Crossroads, we're not talking about just another alternative religion because the gospel itself, Jesus came to destroy religion. Because here's the, the, the subtle thing that religion does. Religion is, is, is twisting the things of God to make it all about me, to serve me, to exalt me. It makes me the focal point. It makes what I do and, and, and what I perform uh, the, the whole deal. I mean, that's the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the most godly people of Jesus' day, but they're so steeped in religion. Jesus says, all you guys do is say, look at me. Look at how I pray. Look at how much I give. Look at how many times I fast. Look at how I give to the poor. At the end of the day, it's, it, it's a system. It, it's there to serve and exalt the person the gospel, gospel never does that. The gospel is not about us. The gospel is about God. The gospel does not exist to serve us. The gospel exists to serve God. And see, any way even that the gospel would exalt us, it's going to be the same way that it exalts Christ. And how is Christ exalted? It was through humility, humiliation. And the same with power, this, this potent power of the gospel that, that actually comes into our life. It doesn't get worked in through signs and wonders, but it gets worked in our lives through suffering and weakness. I mean, think about in Philippians 2 when it, when it says that Christ has a name that is above all names. And, and, and how is it that, that Christ uh, has such a name that is above all? Well, right before it, Philippians says that Jesus became of no reputation. Think about that. He became of no reputation. And see, that's why we have to ask this question. Do we have religion or has the gospel of Jesus Christ truly come in our life? Because there's a lot that we can do in the name of God and for God. But what we need to ask, are we really doing it for God or are we doing it for ourselves? Are we doing it because it's going to bless me or because it's going to bless him? Are we doing it because it's going to exalt me or because it's going to exalt him? And there's just a subtle difference. In fact, on the appearance, it's hard to even know the difference. And religion, in the end, it will serve you. And, and under its guise, impressive things can be done in the name of God. But if it's all just for personal gain to make us lions, we're missing it. Because the gospel is actually the subversive power that actually first subverts us. It topples us. It overthrows life being about us. It overturns our, our, our need for all the fame and the attention. It undermines our attempts to control God and to control others. It dis 
disrupts our, our lifestyle of comfort and ease. It brings ruin to all of our self-serving strategies to exalt ourselves and to make a name for ourselves. And then in this place where we're undone and ruined, God enters us and he calls us to give up our life, to deny ourselves, to become small and of no reputation, to lay down our rights, to give over our power. And in so doing, we become just like him, a lamb. And the subversive power of God can now get worked in our life and get worked out of our life to bring shalom to chaos. That football coach this week, that's the subversive power I'm talking about. I'm a football coach, so I'm, I'm, and, and he's a believer in Jesus Christ, so I'm, I'm asking myself, what would have I done? And see, I know in that moment, when someone's going through a school and, and, and shooting it up, there's not time to think. And so what comes out is just simply who you are and what came out of this football coach who stood in the way of students to take the bullets himself. That is the subversive power of the gospel. And the hardest heart for the gospel to change is a religious heart. Especially when there's celebrity and, and fame and, and, and money all attached to it. It's hard. But Paul, who was first saw is all that. And if God can melt that heart, he can melt any heart. In fact, I'm going to give a plug right now for a movie that Crossroads is going to see coming out on Easter, but we won't see it Easter. But it's the life of the Apostle Paul. Jim Cavizio is in it. He was in the Passion of Christ, and he is Luke. And I want to give him the last word this morning. Paul wrote, Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a lamb slain. For God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Let's pray. God, in this season of Lent, would you open the eyes of our 
heart to see all the Rome that's in our life, all the world. God, would you open our eyes to see the religion? And God, would you give us the grace and the courage to repent? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.